Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Good afternoon and kol uh, that instead of going to a golf course or something, you came to hear about these obscure issues. And uh, uh, also, thanks to uh, Rav Shmuley, I had the opportunity this morning earlier to actually participate in a ceremony of giur, of a person who was not uh, uh, born biologically Jewish, becoming Jewish, and that was a very moving experience. I mean, it's not the first time that it ever happened to me, but it's very, it's always a very moving experience. Um, and what I would like to talk about today is the basics, according to the Jewish and halachic tradition, of people who are not becoming Jewish, being born Jewish, and how to uh, conceptualize, in general, the whole issue of Jews, who are Jews, what does it mean to become one of the Jews? And um, in the, okay, I'll begin by mentioning that uh, in 1791, there was an important decision by the French parliament, newly born French parliament, that Jews could become citizens of France. And that was not so self-evident because the people that opposed this in the French parliament said, the Jews are a nation. The Bible is full of the Jews having a kingdom and a nation and kings, and you can't be part of two nations simultaneously. They didn't hold from dual citizenship. Okay, so a Frenchman can't be a German, and a Frenchman can't be a Russian, and a Russian can't be a Frenchman, and similarly, a Jew can't be a Frenchman. But the other people who ultimately prevailed said, a person can be part of a certain faith community or religion, and that's different than being a nation, and therefore, like, you could have a Catholic Frenchman, a Protestant Frenchman, and a Jewish Frenchman. And it's on this basis that Jews acquired citizenship after the, uh, as part of the emancipation. And the reason that this worked was because the Jews were defined now as a religion and a faith community. And also in the United States, people speak about the Jewish faith and the Jewish faith community and so on. And that's the big thing. But, this is a modern development, and it's enabled Jews to fit in to societies that are structured in this way. 
On the other hand, obviously, Jews, now we all know that there are a lot of Jews who have nothing to do with the Jewish faith. They could care less about the Jewish faith. Some of them think the Jewish faith is very mistaken and they are very progressive in different ways. So, but they're Jewish. Everybody knows that. And they know they're Jewish. The other people know they're Jewish. They fight about why, if you're Jewish, why are you doing that? But so to my mind, after I began thinking about this and I worked on this for several years with a friend of mine, who Professor Avi Sagi from Barilan University, and we wrote a couple of books about this, one in Hebrew, one in English. To my mind, the best way of thinking about the Jews is that we are a kinship group. A kinship group is people who are related to each other. And it could be, it's not the case, but it could be that I had a brother and that brother started taking drugs and he got into the drug business and he, because of this, he was robbing people and doing terrible things and he was put in prison. And that's not the way that our parents taught him to behave. And he might now be 17 years in prison, but he's my brother because the fact that he's my brother has nothing to do with what he believes, how he acts, how he thinks. I may be very unhappy about having a brother like that, but he's my brother. And now that is the situation of Jews. Jews are relations of each other. And typically, if I would go to Hong Kong or to Mexico City and to wherever and Okay, I would go into a synagogue. People would ask me, am I a Kohen or a Levi? But typically, if a new person came in, they wouldn't say, are you Jewish? Um, okay, I'm doing what other people do. I'm meeting other people. Okay, so here I am. I'm part of the group. And in some way, when I go to such places and I meet somebody, and that somebody until now seemed like a regular run-of-the-mill Mexican, but now I discovered that that person is Jewish, somehow I feel that I have something in common. There's some ground of common existence. Okay, so we think of it as a kinship group. And in the Bible, the people are identified if they belong to this kinship group, if their father is Jewish or Israelite, as the case may be. At some time, around the beginning of the common era, this switched. And according to the rabbinic sources, the person is Israelite or Jewish if their mother is Jewish. Now, this seems to us like a big thing. That's a big split or a formal, we hold patrilineal. And conservative and orthodox say, no, it's matrilineal. That's a big machloket. But the common ground is that membership is on the basis of who or the parent. And it's not on the membership of what do you believe? Do you know how to tell me what the Ten Commandments are? What are the rules of Shabbat? There's nothing to do with that. And if you look here on the first page towards the bottom, if an appetite, it, it's written in Maimonides and the Shulchan Aruch also holds this. If an apostate Israelite performs a betrothal, meaning a marriage, even if he has freely chosen an alien religion, the betrothal, the marriage is fully valid 
and for the wife to be released, she requires a bill of divorce. Um, so let's say somebody went, was born to a Jewish mother, and, but they have become disillusioned with that. And they're living as a Hindu somewhere in India. And now they meet a young woman who a couple of years ago was released from service or finished her service in the IDF. And as many young Israelis do, she went out to do a world tour. And there she is in India. And this gentleman uh, who was originally Jewish and now is living as a Hindu for several years meets this young woman and they fall in love. And he says, I want to marry you. She says, but you're a Hindu. He says, I'm a Hindu, but I'm a Jewish Hindu. And they find two young men from an Israeli yeshiva who also completed their Israeli, their army service. And they're also there. And they say, you could be our adim. You could be our witnesses. Come. And the fellow takes a silk scarf, which is certainly an item of value. And he says to this young woman, Hare at mekudeshit li, you are betrothed to me according to the rules of Moshe Israel, Moses and Israel. And that person, the marriage is valid. Of course, they're both of them Jewish. Now, if you check in the Talmud, in the rabbinic literature, and you want to know what is the ground of the ruling that somebody who was born Jewish and has now switched to another religion, another faith community in their daily life has nothing to do with being Jewish, but now they decide to do some Jewish act, okay? And they're Jewish for that purpose. How does the Talmud know about this? It's nowhere stated in the Talmud, except with regard to a convert. Okay, the next page, you have the classic text, which in, is in the Talmud, in the Tractate Yevamot, which is the main source of all of the rules concerning how does a person whose mother was, or father, and if you're a former, was not Jewish, how do they become Jewish? Our rabbis taught, if a prospective proselyte, proselyte is a fancy Greek word, which according to certain scholars, for its, I mean, it first occurs apparently in the Septuagint, the translation of the Bible into Greek, which was done in Alexandria, like in minus 200 and something BC. And there for the first time, they render ger, which in the Bible means a stranger, an alien, Abraham was a ger, okay? They render ger in many instances as proselyte, meaning somebody who joined the Jewish group. So here also the English follows that usage. If a prospective proselyte comes to undergo gear in the present era, we say to them, doesn't know who says it, somebody says it. What did you see that made you come to see gear? Do you not know that nowadays Israel are afflicted, oppressed, downtrodden, and harassed, and that hardships come upon them? And that's exactly what Rav Shmuley said this morning. He said to this young woman uh, from American-Philippine uh, descent, don't you know that there's anti-Semites in the world? Don't you know that you could go to different places and people will attack you just when they discover that you're Jewish? without knowing anything else about you? And do you still want to be Jewish? And she said, yes. Well, this, this person had 
That's the first time apparently she had thought about this. If the person responds, I know and I'm unworthy of joining them, meaning I regard it as a privilege, we accept him immediately. In parentheses, the whole notion that we have to, somebody's coming to convert and we say to them, no, nah, go away. Why do you want to become Jewish? You don't need to be Jewish. Go away. And only if they come back several times, then we allow them to be Jewish. That's um, didn't exist, it, it doesn't exist in halachic literature. It's a custom which grew from the fact that in medieval times, if you were living in a Muslim-majority country and a person came to convert and you said, sure, you could convert, the next thing you know, that person is dead and you're also on your way because you took somebody away from the true faith and corrupted them and now they're not because they have to, they died. And also the same thing if you're living in a Christian country and the person until now was uh, believing or not believing Catholic and you agreed to accept them for conversion, you and they are all in danger. So it became very popular in medieval times to say, no, go away, go away. We don't want you. Uh, but the Talmud says, we accept him immediately. We inform him of some minor commandments, some major commandments. We inform him of the sin of the neglect of the commandments of gleanings, the forgotten sheaf, the courier, the poor man's tithe. Oh, these are all agricultural commandments, which is if you're Jewish and you have a crop, according to biblical law, you're about to harvest your apple orchid. You wake up in the morning, there's 40 people looking like homeless people standing on the border of your field. You say, what are you doing here? Well, we have rights. After you finish taking most of the apples, we have a right to take the rest and you can't prevent us. And that's the ground of the mitzvah of tzedakah, of giving to the needy, is these biblical commandments. So why do we tell this to the prospective convert? Because this convert may have think mistakenly, that by converting, they're now in a new relationship with God. We're saying to them, no, you're no less now going to be in a new relationship with all of the other Jews. And if you're one of the people that's fortunate to have an orchid, to have resources, they are going to expect you rightfully to share with them it's not only between you and God, you're now also entering into commitment towards other Jewish people and vice versa. If you'll be in need, they'll help you. Why? Because you're now a member of the family. You're part of the kinship group. Um, and we tell them about the mitzvot, this and that, and what you could be punished in, according to biblical law for not doing different punishments, but already at the time that this was being said, if you profane the Sabbath, you'll be punished by stoning. That commandment was already not operative in rabbinic times. So this is a way of saying it's very serious, but not that this is actually going to happen to that person. And they say, know that the world to come is not made except for the righteous. And in the present era, the Jewish people cannot receive an abundance of good or an abundance of calamity. So in real life, our situation is not so great. Don't expect reward here and now in this life for becoming a Jew. Afterwards, okay, now you know that according to the Jewish tradition, all righteous people, you don't have to be Jewish to get to heaven, okay? But being Jewish is very helpful in that respect. 
Um, then if, there's, if the person wasn't circumcised, it's a man, we have to have circumcision. And we immerse him immediately, and two scholars stand above him and inform him of some of the commandments and some. Once he has immersed and come up, he is like a Jew in every respect. And the Talmud says, what does this mean that once the person has immersed, that's the final capping ceremony of the gi or the conversion is immersion. Today we do it in a mikveh, but you could do it in a mountain pool in appropriate places in the sea and so on. It has to be private because the person is without clothes. The implication is, what does this mean that now that he has come up from the immersion, they're like a Jew in all respects, that if the proselyte reverts to a Gentile life, but then later performs a ceremony of Kiddushin with a Jewish woman, we regard him as an apostate Jew, meaning he's a Jew, although not he's in the wrong religion, and the Kiddushin are valid. And this is telling us that a ceremony of gear is irrevocable. It's a one-way osmosis, right? You can't go back. And this is the source that a Jew, by biological birth, whatever they do is from the convert. We know this about all other Jews. And in this sense, the convert is exactly like all other Jews because they've now entered into a new life situation and there's no way back. And a similar position is found in a different tractate of the Mishnah, tractate Bechorot. Um, the Tosefta states, a proselyte who took upon himself all matters of Torah and is suspected of non-observance, even with regard to the entire Torah, he is like an Israelite apostate. In what way? If he performs Kiddushin, his Kiddushin is valid. Now, today, it has become, in certain ultra-Orthodox circles, certain Haredi circles, also in Israel, and also in certain circles in the United States, that if somebody had a ceremony of Giyur, and they then, after some time, stopped being Jewishly observant, and started acting like they had before they had the ceremony of Giyur, then this is a sign of their insincerity, and rabbis can declare one year, five years, ten years later that they never were Jewish. And this is a sign of the great radical innovations of Haredi Halakha of Haredi Jewry because it doesn't exist in any sources um, until 100 years ago, okay? In 1876, um, I can say this with some, because in the context of doing the research for our books, we went through all the material that we could find from rabbinic times until now. The first, there was a person in 1876, Rabbi Yitzhak Schmilkes living in Lvov, and he was unhappy with what was happening in German Orthodox Jewry, that they were receiving converts who wouldn't be completely observant afterwards. And he wrote, he doesn't see how they could do that because part of the ceremony of viewers for somebody to accept the commandments 
And what that means is that it has to be in their heart a deep conviction that they do intend to be fully Jewishly observant after the conversion. Now, he knew that there was an immediate objection to that according to standard halachic sources, standard Jewish sources. If somebody went through a certain procedure which has legal validity, but in their heart they were cheating, right? I'll give an extreme example. A couple get married. After a week, the woman is found in bed with another man. And they said, How, don't you know that you're a married woman? You shouldn't be doing that by getting married. You, And she says, well, but at the time of the marriage ceremony, I never really intended to be married. Okay, so the classic position is, and also in American law, you went to a process of the peace, you got married. Okay, so the couple might need a divorce. They might need something, but the marriage is not contingent upon having where you sign a contract. Okay, so... The procedure is not contingent upon internal intent. The same thing is true of Giyur until this fellow came around and he said that's true in everything else. Only Giyur is different because God seeks the heart. How does he know that God seeks the heart? He knows it. Um, and at that time, this was a theoretical thing. He said, how could the rabbis in Germany be accepting these converts? But now, as time went by, this notion has become more and more in vogue and um, I, I think it maybe has crested and it's slightly being reduced, but that uh, 10 or 15 years ago, there was a lot of things to do in Israel. People, rabbis were saying, this one is not a convert. This, do you want through a regular conversion? No. Um, and the way that Maimonides, okay, as you know, Maimonides, who lived in the, and was active in the 12th century, he was born in Spain, went through North Africa, came to Egypt. He was a physician in the court of Salah al-Din. Um, and he was probably the greatest scholar of medieval times, the Jewish scholar. He was also a scientist and also a scholar. And he wrote a great book called Mishneh Torah. In this book, Mishneh Torah, he summed up, to the best of his extent, in beautiful, lucid Hebrew, much clearer than if you want to read the Talmud. It's a very difficult, confused language, partially Hebrew, partially Aramaic. The Mishneh Torah is written in very lucid Hebrew uh, that any school child in Israel, sixth grade, seventh grade, could read easily. And he said he's going to put in order all of the rules and regulations and norms and decisions by all the rabbis until his time in a logical way. And he was the first person, and in fact the last person, that ever did that for the complete corpus of rabbinic literature. And he had freedom to structure it however he wanted. Okay, he began from ground zero, okay? And he imagined, uh, so at the first, the whole, the first part of the book is called the Book of Science, Sefer Hamadah, but it really presents first about there is a God. 
It doesn't say in the Talmud anywhere that there is a God. You have to believe, you should believe that there is a God. It doesn't say that in the Talmud. It's taken for granted. What are we talking about? Okay. Uh, and that God has no body or shape. If you believe that God has a body or shape, you're out. You're Jewish, but you're an apicurus. That was the first time anybody had ever written that in halachic literature. Until his time, and after his time, many people believed, sure, God has a shape. It says God's eyes are looking at you in the Bible. God's finger, the, the Pharaoh's advisors say to him, it's ba Elohimi, this is the finger of God that has now done this plague. God took the Israelites out of Egypt with an extended arm. So uh, in a passage that many people remember reading, I think it's in Shemot chapter 24, after the whole issue of the Ten Commandments and God's revelation at Mount Sinai, it says that Moses and Aaron and a lot of the elders of the Jewish people went up to Parkway on Mount Sinai and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet was like a footstool of pure sapphire. So what do we understand from this? That they saw God, he was sitting there and he had feet. Okay, so anybody reading the Bible will know that God has a body. The Bible even says that we are made in God's image. Uh, Maimonides knew from his philosophical Greek training that that couldn't be. Something that was physical could not be eternal, so you had to choose. If you had to choose between God being physical and God being eternal, what do you choose? He's eternal. So he has no body. So this, so he put this into halakha before that it didn't exist in the literature. So he had complete freedom and he could think about the rules of gear. Somebody wasn't born Jewish, then now they're having gear. Where would he put these rules? So let's say you were writing a book of Jewish customs and traditions and you wanted to speak about people who were now being chosen they chose to be Jewish. Where, in what section would you put that? What other things would you associate with that in your mind? I remember they mentioned, like, when there's a story the blasphemers are leaving Egypt, like, the reason that that comes up is because the person who's a blasphemer was, like, said to go sleep with the converts. So I know, I know it came up there. Okay. So in what section would you put that? I mean, just... I'm just connecting it to a Torah, a particular Torah portion. So with the Torah. Okay, so. Okay, any other thoughts? Would you associate it with, I don't know, Pesach? Would you associate it with eating kosher? Marriage. Hmm? Associate it with marriage rules. With marriage rules? Or birth rules, well, yeah. <laughs> okay, how would you associate it with marriage rules? say that you have to you have to prove that you're Jewish especially in modern Israel you have to prove that you're Jewish in order to be able to get married in Israel which okay. is why everybody goes to Cyprus okay <laughs> yes 
okay, so you might think that it has to do with some belief. You might think that it has to do, for instance, with teshuva, repentance. Okay, Jewish people, Maimonides has a section which he also invented called Hilchot Teshuva. How do people, uh, especially before the high holidays, but not necessarily choose to change their way of life to bring it more into accordance with what they understand God would like from them. Uh, you could, but so he had complete fear, and where he put it was in a section of the book called Rules of Forbidden Unions, which is who you're not allowed to marry, right? So the first it begins with the really serious things. You're not allowed, a man is not allowed to marry his mother. A woman is not allowed to marry her father. Brother and sister are not allowed to marry. You don't want to have sex with animals. That's okay. And so on and so forth. And then they get to lesser and lesser. And around chapter 12, he gets to that, according to the Jewish tradition, we, have, we should have endogamy, meaning people with, should marry within the kinship group. And sometimes towards the end of that chapter, he says, but you know what? This is not like the father and the mother because this condition can be changed. And somebody who was until now not Jewish and therefore not part of the group, they could become Jewish. And once they become Jewish, there's no problem of marrying them. They're part of the group. And so let's see how the person could become Jewish. So plunk in the middle of the laws of forbidden unions, just after he said how we are in favor of endogamy and people should marry within the group, but they didn't, shouldn't marry out of the group. He says, but the people that are currently out of the group could come in. And here he gives two chapters on the rules of Giyur, how somebody who was not part of the group can become part of the group. And doing this, then he sets up, according to the various sources that he found in the Talmud, how this could be done and what is the procedure. And... We're now at the bottom of page three in the sources to tell you that maybe it's not like you always thought it was. He says, do not imagine that Samson, the savior of Israel, or Solomon, king of Israel, who was called the beloved of the Lord, married foreign women while they were still Gentiles. Why would anybody think that Solomon married foreign women? He had a lot of wives. And they were political. And it says in the book of Kings that a lot of these wives were not Jewish and they worshipped alien gods in the heart of Jerusalem. Why would anybody think that Samson was associating with non-Jewish women? Okay. Anybody here, a woman? Delilah. Delilah. Samson and Delilah, right? She cut his long locks, and therefore he was captured by the Philistines and so on. She wasn't Jewish. If you look at the story, you'll see that even before that, he had another non-Jewish partner, and he came to his parents, and he said, I want you to take that, because then the parents were doing the shiduchim, said, I want you to take that woman for me. And they said, but she's not Israelite. Can't you find somebody Israelite? He said, no, I want her. So the Bible says expressly that these people were marrying non-Jewish women. 
But Maimonides says, no, no, that never happened, never happened. We don't want you to think that way. And he says, now I'll tell you what really did happen. Okay, so from the way he's telling it, you could see how, what he, how he thinks about this. The secret of this matter is as follows. Since Samson had women undergo Giur and then married them. Solomon had women undergo Giur and then married them. Right? So it says, like, one of the foreign women, it was all political arrangements, as people said before, right? So the daughter of Pharaoh. It says in the Bible, King Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh. I'm sure that Pharaoh had several daughters, and different of them had shiduchim with different kings all around, and this was political alliances. So she married the daughter of Pharaoh. So how does Maimonides imagine it? She comes to the border, right, in the Negev, Nitzana, is the border crossing between Egypt and Israel. She comes there with her retinue, and Maimonides, and Solomon sent down a couple of people, his agents, and they said to her, uh, Miss Nefertiti, Princess Nefertiti, you are here to have the special, uh, we're very privileged to have you coming to uh, marry our king. There's a small matter. Before you marry our king, you have to symbolically join our group. And we do this right over here. There's a spring in the desert, the Kadesh Barnea spring. And you can immerse yourself in that spring. And now you will be one of us and we'll bring you to Jerusalem to, okay, she does it. She until now was immersing in the Nile River, now in the spring, and now she comes to Jerusalem. And it is known that they became Jewish only for a purpose, meaning for marriage. And their gear is in defiance of the official court, which, according to Maimonides, would never have agreed to such a procedure. Therefore, Scripture considered them as if Gentiles. In addition, their subsequent behavior revealed their original mindset. They worshipped alien gods. Okay, and the whole, the Bible says there were places of worship for alien gods that Solomon built in his reign, and then God was very angry at him. He says, my man, and he says, no, it wasn't Solomon. It was these women who had become Jewish, but still believed in other gods, Ra, and so on, and they wanted to build sites of worship for these gods, so they used the credit card that Solomon gave them. And therefore, God counts it against Solomon as if he built. But who is really doing it? This? These women. But were these women Jewish? Maimonides said, yes, don't imagine that they weren't Jewish. They were Jewish who became Jewish for the purpose of marriage and continued to believe in their previous alien gods. So they were Jewish idolaters. The whole Bible is full of the prophets saying, Jews, why are you worshiping idols? God is very unhappy with you. So this was another group of Jewish women worshiping idols, but they were Jewish. And the upshot of this on page four, a proselyte, a person who came to be Jewish, whose motives were not investigated, 
or was not informed about the commandments and their desserts, meaning the person came, they were asked nothing, and they were told nothing about the whole Jewish religion. Well, was circumcised, if it's a man, and immersed in the presence of three laymen, is a proselyte. They're Jewish. Even it was known that his becoming a proselyte is for some utilitarian purpose. Okay. He has exited from the Gentile group. Once he was circumcised and immersed, he should be regarded with reservation. Of course, maybe you don't want to marry a person who you'll later discover is a believer in the Latter-day Saints. <laughs> but even if he once again worships idols, he is an appetized Israelite whose betrothal is valid. We are commanded to return his lost property to him because he immersed, he is an Israelite. That is why Samson and Solomon kept their wives, even though their wives' secret was manifest. So Gior is a procedure for joining the Jewish group. And it doesn't it's not necessarily contingent upon the proselyte fully believing or even knowing very much about the content of the religion of the Jews. If you think about the Bible, it's obvious that the Israelite group, the Jewish group, preceded the Israelite religion. It's only because of this that we can speak about a covenant between the Israelite group and God at Mount Sinai. If there wasn't an Israelite group pre-existing to the covenant and the reception of the Torah, who was entering into this agreement? So logically, the existence of the Israelite group, this kinship group, the Sainan, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the tribes, their children and grandchildren, and anybody who joined them preceded the notion of a Jewish religion or the religion of the Jews. And as I said before, at no point in the Talmudic period in the 19th century did any rabbi rule that an individual's proselytes, converts, sinful behavior or pagan beliefs would invalidate his Jewishness. And since the basic construct of the Jewish group is kinship and people being part of it, not because they necessarily chose a priori, but because they were born into it, the way that rabbis constructed the notion of gear, what does it mean? It's a procedure of birth. The Christians speak about born again, but the Christians, where do they get this from? They were all originally Jews. <laughs> and so the conceptualization of gear as birth, as I spoke to this young woman who before becoming Jewish was called Maria, and then she chose the Jewish name today of Miriam, and I said to her, that's the original Maria. Where did the Christians get Maria from, right? Mary, who is Mary? Miriam, <laughs> okay. So the original conception is that people, that Giur is a ceremony of birth, and this construct in rabbinical imagination was such a necessary ground of what does it mean that somebody is now Jewish, that they are born Jewish, that they took this or expressed this in terms that to us can seem very shocking. 
look on page five. The newly, let's say a brother and a sister get married. Yes, see how a brother and a sister from uh, the uh, respected Eskimo family, the Inuit family of Okhata, a brother and a sister become Jewish. Until now, they had the same father, the same mother. They're both brother, they're brother and sister. Now the rabbi said that can't be. You can't be part of the Eskimo kinship group and part of the Israelite kinship group. So, by Torah law, the Oraita, they could marry one another. The biological father, who now became Jewish, might marry his daughter, the mother, her son, a brother, his sister, and so forth. But the rabbis realized that while this might be part of the construct that the person is not part of their original kinship group, it's a new kinship group, they realized that psychologically that's too shocking. <laughs> so they said, in principle, that's the case, but we're not going to allow it. So since rabbinical times, certainly if a brother and sister both converted, they can't now marry each other. But that shows you the strength of the content, even things that we take or like biological fact of the taboo of relationship, sexual relationship within the immediate family is ultimately a social construct. A, 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 um, right? The, the, the pharaohs married their sisters. So what is the family? What are the bounds of the family? If somebody is allowed to marry their niece, according to biblical law, no problem. An uncle could marry the niece. According to Christian idea that's horrible, that's incest, that's disgusting. So it's a cultural thing, and the rabbis felt very strongly about, okay, if a father and son both underwent giur, the son does not inherit his father upon the latter's death. The father could write a will, giving him everything, but it's not natural parentage according to this contract. Now, this is a price that the rabbis are paying. Why are they prying this space? Because they want the person to know that they are now part of a different kinship, the Israelite, the Jewish kinship. While according to halakha, the testimony of relative is not acceptable in court, persons, two brothers who are related prior to Giyur, may after undergoing Giyur testify on court on behalf of each other. That holds today, too. In a rabbinic court, two previous brothers can bear witness if they are now girim, um, and they're not considered relatives in that respect. And finally, and I'll wind up with this, and then I'll be happy to take any questions or comments. Um, the ceremony, the core ceremony of gur, which you mentioned before, is immersion. Okay. Now, a mikveh, or a place for immersion, uh, existed in many Jewish communities, exists in many Jews for a whole variety of purposes. But in this specific instance of Gyur, it's very appropriate because what happens in an immersion in a mikvah, the person, okay, divests themselves of all their garments and Naked as a newborn, they enter into this body of water and they come up 
They come out just like a baby. In the mother's womb, the baby is in a, a, a fluid, okay, the embryonic fluid. And now they came out, they're newly born, and there's no way back. Oh, however, psychologists may tell us that we have this internal wish to return to the wonderful existence before birth. No. Once, okay, so Gior is constructed also physically, the mikveh is like a birth. And in that sense, and that's the time, all Jews are Jews by birth. Some people, because their biological parent was Jewish, and some people, because the ceremony and procedure of Giyur is a procedure of birth. The person has now been born into the Jewish community, into the Jewish kinship group. They are called, okay, the daughter of Sarah and Abraham, the son of Sarah and Abraham. And uh, as Maimonides famously wrote to a person who in medieval times braved the dangers of Giyur and left the lands of Christianity and came to a Muslim country because they didn't care about Christians converting to Jews. They only considered Muslims. And they said to this person, you are now our brother. You, like us, were born to Abraham Abraham Avinu, our father Abraham, is the father of the Israelite kinship group, and all people who choose to follow Abraham are now together brothers and sisters in this group by birth. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Professor Zohar. We have uh, a few minutes to take some questions um, on a range of issues. You're dealing with a first-rate scholar here on this issue and beyond, so uh, let's open the floor if we have anything, anything here. Yes, please. So, theoretically, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago even, uh, a man is Jewish, he has children, he dies, the tribe becomes lost, we don't know what happens, uh, but son begets son or, and or daughter. Uh, from what you're saying, um, a Jew born of a Jew is always... A, a, a Jew is always a Jew, and a Jew born of a Jew is a Jew, so there are millions of people walking around the world now who, according to texts, not according to customs of the last 100, 150 years, but according to texts, are Jewish. Yes. So um, maybe, as who knows how sophisticated DNA or other scientific tests become in the future, we find somebody, they have a marker, aha, they declare I'm Jewish, they don't even need to be converted. So do you see a day where somebody comes up and says, I'm Jewish, my ancestry is Jewish, 
I'm Jewish, I'm part of the kinship. End of story, and conversion is not required. Well, first of all, yes. In fact, that happens a lot in real life. Uh, not going back hundreds of years, because that's more difficult. But yes, there are people living today in Israel who were born in the Soviet Union and didn't really know who their great-grandparents were. And uh, once they could show that, then they came on Aliyah to Israel. Uh, this was debated, what you're saying, was debated very strongly immediately the years after the 1492 expulsion from Spain. Because there, it's from Spain, not from Portugal, the people that were in Spain were given a choice. You could remain here if you choose Christianity. If not, it's throwing you out. And a lot of people chose to remain. And then, after one generation, two generations, three generations, a hundred years later, somebody shows up in Salonika or in Amsterdam, and they say, I'm Jewish. Because, I can tell you this one, Mary Dan, I'm Jewish, and the rabbis debated it at this time, because in the Talmudic source, it speaks about the first generation, a person who was Jewish and left. But what about six, seven generations down the line. So that was debated, and the majority views of the rabbis in the 16th century were, it works forever. It works forever. The issue is that the Jews don't know what to do with that. Okay, the whole Southwest is full of people who say that my ancestors were crypto-Jews. In South America, there's Millions of people like that. I know a rabbi who's working with them, and they now have about 25 congregations of people who used to be crypto-Jews, and just and they want to become rejoin Judaism, and just to be sure, they have gear to make sure, but so there's millions of people like that that if the Jewish community wanted, would want to join, but the Jewish community isn't very... Welcoming. Uh, do you want to say something? Uh, uh, well, there's a Facebook group called Tracing the Tribe, and at least once a week you'll get somebody who did their DNA, and it shows them that they have X amount, and they're from the Caribbean or South America, Central America, and their great-grandfathers were Jewish. And they don't know what to do with that. And nobody else knows what to do with that. And then you go to Israel, and you have the Rabbinud who are running around going, you're not Jewish. Prove that you're Jewish. You want to make Aliyah, prove that you're Jewish. And a lot of us who were born Jewish had a whole lot harder time proving that than those people who converted. Well, first of all, Okay, about 10 years ago or 12 years ago, the Orthodox rabbis in the United States began getting a lot of flack from the Israel rabbinate that their conversions weren't recognized. And at that point, the 
And but if the rabbis here would follow the procedures that rabbis in Israel followed, then they would recognize their conversions. And it was a group of people, including a couple of my friends, Rabbi Mark Angel and Rabbi Avi Weiss. They said, we should say to the Israeli rabbinate, you don't want to recognize our conversions? Fine. We're not going to recognize your conversions because we are here in America and we're doing what to the best judgment we know is good for the people here and you're in Israel. You don't know what's good for people here. Maybe, I'm from Israel, I don't agree, but maybe they know what's good for people in Israel. <laughs> but they sure, and they were chosen by the people in America and they're not part of, they don't have responsibility for what's gonna happen here if people fall in love with non-Jewish people, then the rabbinate makes it. But mistakenly, in my opinion, the majority of the Orthodox rabbis in the United States decided they're gonna go with the Israeli rabbinate and they set up a whole different procedure which is much worse than it used to be and local rabbis according to that procedure, can't finalize any gear. They have to send them to far away thousands of miles to some rabbinic court that doesn't know who these converts were. So uh, to my mind, it would be, it's a mistake for people or congregations out of Israel, and I know a lot of places in Europe. In Europe you go, there's a small community. Okay, you come to synagogue on the Sabbath, there's about, okay, they, have men separate when they're nominally orthodox, whatever the people are. Yes, sir. And you see this 15 people sitting on the men's side and the rabbi isn't starting the service. Why? Because of these people, eight are non-Jewish. They haven't had gear. So I say, the these people are here in synagogue. They come next week also. It's for the good of your community that all of them will have gear and that's it. They'll be Jewish like everybody else. In fact, in, my wife and I were several years back in Norway. The backbone of the Norwegian Jewish community is women converts who married Jewish men. The policy of the Rabbanut there, of Rabbi Malkior, was to have gear whenever the person requested it which is also the policy in North Africa. And now the backbone of the community, the people who are most active, most committed, most involved, are these women and their children. Okay, the same thing in Italy. Since the Renaissance times, it was very common in Italy that Jewish men would take non-Jewish wives, and when they had a children born to them, they would bring them to the rabbi and say, I want my child to be Jewish. Sure, no problem. They would convert the kid. And the Jewish community in Italy continued like that for hundreds of years. I mean, not all Jewish men married only non-Jewish women, but whenever that happened, nothing. Then about 30, 40 years ago came Chabad. And they started making trouble. They said, no, that's, that's not serious. It's not this, it's not that. So they intimidated the local rabbis in Italy to abandon that thing. And now they, they have families in which the older brother was Jewish according to the earlier policy. And the younger brother or sister is not Jewish because now they already weren't accepted. And because they weren't accepted, the Jewish school won't take them in. 
And this was a great tragedy, in my mind, for Italian Jewry because they started following policies that just don't fit what's really necessary. And it's possible under halacha if Samson can convert Delilah, according to Maimonides, and uh, Shlomo HaMelech can convert, then uh, there is no reason to be rejecting people who want to become part of the Jewish group. They may not be now the most religiously committed people, but nobody's forcing them to join the group. A lot of people are marrying out and their spouses aren't becoming Jewish. So if the spouse wants to become Jewish, what do we gain by trying to make life difficult for them? And there's no, and the halachic grounds are very weak to do that. But what are they, so there, there's also a debate on, on Ruth. Ruth said to her mother-in-law, You're I gone. will follow you. Right. And then she became Jewish just by that. Okay, if you look in the Bible, that's an excellent observation. And that's exactly how the rabbis constructed that. Okay, Ruth was living, she married one of the daughters of Naomi. Then Naomi's husband passed away. Uh, Ruth's husband passed away. The husband passed away. And now Ruth said, I'm sticking with you. Your God is my God. Your people is my people. In fact, she put it differently. For your people is my people. Amech, ami, Your people is my people. And by the way, Obviously, what is the bottom line for her? She was faithful to Naomi. Before we get to God, okay, there was a human relationship here. She identified as part of that group, although she had never been in Judea. Naomi returned after the years of famine to Bethlehem, which is why Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem, because David came from Bethlehem. Of course, Ruth went to Bethlehem, and he, she was the great-grandmother of David. So, she had, so Naomi came back to her family. Ruth didn't come back. It was the first time she ever set foot in Judea when she came back. So ultimately, the grounds of Ruth's identity was her identification and love for Naomi, her mother-in-law. But... When she gets there, and it's a wonderful story to read and reread the story of Ruth. My wife feels very strongly that it was written by a woman. Um, and um, when push comes to shove, okay, they have the idea of yibum, that men from the family of a person that died are supposed to marry his widow and continue the lineage. And they come, and now Boaz says, you know, we have to do right by Ruth, and somebody has to take care and to the lineage of the deceased, her husband, and marry her. And he doesn't say it's because she said, your God is my God, and so on. How did she become part of this lineage? Because out there in Moab, she married 
Naomi's son, Mahlon. And by virtue of that marriage, she became, she married him. Okay, in biblical times, we don't know, and there's no evidence of any ceremony of gear in biblical times. And women, by marrying into the group, are now part of that group, just like, or in a similar way that the wife of a Kohen, according to, can eat of the tithes and the trumot going to the Kohen, because she has now joined his family. So a person, a woman, by marrying in to an Israelite lineage, which goes at biblical times through the man, is now part of the group. And a lot of kings of Judea, uh, uh, Solomon's son, Rehavam, was the daughter of an Ammonite woman. A lot of the great kings of Judea, their father was a king or a prince, but their mother was, was not. Okay, I think, I think we're going to pause here just to honor everyone's time. So thank you, Professor Zohar. Okay. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.